So I'm glad you're here. Um, so, so we have an amazing we have an amazing thing in in Parshas Vayera, which is uh, trying to understand exactly what happened, what the nature of the test was with um, Abraham uh, binding Yitzchak. And uh, th- there's a lot there there are a lot of um, sort of misconceptions what the nature of this test was. And so I want to explain what, what the test was, um, as, as, as it's been taught to me, um, which is very, very different from what most people think, and what the implications are in terms, of, in terms of our personal development and our personal growth, and kind of what we're doing right now, just in terms of our lives, you know? We, there's a lot going on, but um, anyway, so, so let's get right to it. So... So there's this Pusik that says that, um, that Abraham saw the place from afar. The place meaning where, um, where Abraham was supposed to go and, and sacrifice Yitzchak. And, uh, there's a lot going on here. One thing is that, um, Hashem didn't exactly tell Abraham where to go to do this enormous thing that he was asking him to do. And I don't know if any of you have experienced this in your own life. I know I have, which is that if you're driving someplace for the first time, it, it takes longer to get there than when you return back from that place. Even though it's the identical distance, and let's say there's the identical amount of traffic, because when you don't know where it is that you're going, you're constantly thinking, is this it? Is this it? Is this it? Is this it? And that, that takes a long time. There's a lot of mental and sort of emotional uh, uh, effort that, that goes into it. And then when you've gotten there already and you're just going back, you just go, oh, yeah, just take this right down and that's what it is. And you're like, wow, it went so much faster. So part of the nature of this extreme test was that Hashem asked Abraham to sacrifice, and we're going to go a little bit more deeply into what that means, sacrifice, but to sacrifice Yitzchak, at this place and didn't tell him where the place was. So can you imagine? He's got so much on his mind and on top of it, he's got to do it in this particular place and where is this place? So, so the word for the place, Hamakom, it gets deeper now. So the Zohar says Hamakom points out that Hamakom is one of the names of God. So, so he's looking He's looking not just for the place, but he's looking for God. And the Pasuk says that he saw the place from afar. God, Hamakum, God, seemed very distant. So, so now we can get much deeper. So what does this mean that God seemed very distant to Abraham at this point? Because as Rabbi Wolfson explains it, this is the key to understanding the nature of the entire test. So you and I most likely think or thought that the nature of the test was, here is Yitzchak, who's the only child of Sarah, who's born when she's 90 years old, this miraculous birth. Abraham is 99 at the time that he's conceived. You know, is he going to take this most precious child, this son, and kill him? Right? This is how the world understands the nature of the test. Okay, so that's not it at all. Alright, that's, that wasn't the test at all. And let's just begin by, with the, an opening mind-blowing concept, which is that, that was not a test for Abraham. Abraham would have sacrificed him in a minute. So, okay, that's just for starters. Now there's a lot of conversation just based on that. We're, we're bypassing the entire thing. He didn't have any reservations whatsoever. If that's what God says, boom, that's it. That's what I'm doing. Okay, so then wait a second. Everyone's thinking, that's the test. Should I? Shouldn't I? My only son, you know, from Sarah at least. So now we're finding out that that wasn't even the beginning of the nature of the test. So then what was the test? Because we know this is one of history's greatest challenges. Doesn't that sound like a terrible commercial for a reality show? 
Um, so, bless you. Um, so, so then what was the test? Okay, so let's get back to this Pasuk. It says that Abraham saw the place, Hamakum, which we also know is the name of Hashem, the place from afar. By the way, just as a P.S., this name, you don't see it too often for God, Hamakum. Another place that you see it is when you console a mourner. You refer to God, you say, may Hashem console you along with all of the mourners of Israel and Yerushalayim. Um, and we refer to Hashem as Hamakom in, this, in these words of consolation. And the explanation uh, is very beautiful. It's because Hamakom means the place, which means Hashem is everywhere. Hashem is omnipresent. You see, a lot of times when someone loses a, a loved one, maybe not on an intellectual level, well, it depends on the person. Sometimes it's on an intellectual level, sometimes it's on an emotional level, but they feel as though that person is gone forever. And that's part of the sadness. They feel like, that's it. I no longer have any connection to that person because they've left this world. So that's not the case because the soul lives on. The person continues to live as the person himself because all of the information, all of the good that they've done, it's like if you have a disk and you have a computer. The computer is the hardware. The disk is the software. The disk is your soul. When a person's soul leaves their body, all of their personality, all of their deeds, everything that they've accomplished remains imprinted on them. We tend to think that even though the soul lasts forever, that somehow we rise up, we get absorbed into godliness, and then we just disappear. And that's, that's not the case. The person's soul remains. In fact, I heard a rabbi explain something very beautiful. How are you going to recognize your loved ones in the next world? Because they're not going to have bodies. And what they'll be is on their souls will be all of the mitzvahs that they've done. It will be imprinted on them. So you'll go up and I'll... I'll use myself as an example. After 120, I'll go up and I'll see this, this description of this person and it will say, gave birth to David Sachs, <laughs> nurtured him, fed him, and I'll go, Mom! <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so, so the thing is, is that we don't disappear. And, um, you know, I talked about it another time in another context. The whole, um, the whole notion of this, um, this um, cult, if you will, of fame, of celebrity, that exists in our present um, culture, in our zeitgeist right now. And um, I think that um, it's no coincidence that you've got two things coexisting simultaneously, which is a great secular, um, you know, quote-unquote, with heavy, heavy irony, enlightenment going on, um, which, is, which is the assertion that all of life can be understood on a rational basis, which in itself is a completely irrational thought, um, ironically. Um, because anyone who's lived a day in this world knows that life is not linear, <laughs> life is not logical, just isn't. It's, 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 it's functioning on a much deeper plane, although much obviously can be understood. So you have two things going on in society right now. You have a, a great wave of denial of God and secularness, and simultaneously you have this great lust for fame. So, I would like to suggest that these two things are very interrelated. Because people want to make a name for themselves. Because they're being told by the world that there is no life after this life. Therefore, they're dying, so to speak, to make a name for themselves. But really... The reality is, is that we do last forever. We really do last forever. And, and, and the soul itself is immortal. 
You see, when someone makes a great movie or a great album or writes a great book, they experience an aspect of immortality because their name lives on after them. So they're hungering for that. They're hungering for that continuation of their name. But the reality is, is that that's going on in their souls anyway because their soul lives on. But because they're misguided and they don't know that their soul lives on, they're trying to assure that continuation in a misguided way, which is that, let me get my picture in People magazine. So, so, so they're directing that energy, that immortality that's within them, into a very limited place, where the soul is really thirsting for the ultimate immortality, which is to attach itself to God through mitzvahs. Okay, so how do we console the mourner? We tell them, Hamakom, we refer to God with this name of the place, the omnipresent one, the one who's absolutely everywhere. And so you realize the consolation then is, you thought you lost that person? You didn't lose that person. That person remains, that soul is immortal. You'll also be joined after 120 with that person. That person didn't go anywhere. And then you go, ha, ah, you breathe a sigh of relief. I didn't lose them. Because Hamakom, God is absolutely everywhere. The soul is still with God and the soul is still the soul. It didn't disappear. Okay, so now let's get back to this Pasuk. We want to know what was the test to Abraham Avinu. So we just said something very radical, which is that it wasn't, can I possibly sacrifice my, my son Yitzchak? Because Abraham would have done that in a second. So what was it? So it says that Hamakom, that Hashem, he saw the place from far off. He seemed very, very far away. So what does this mean? God seemed far away. All right. You see, this is the nature of the test. The test was, it looks like God is contradicting himself. On the one hand, he's telling me that Yitzchak is going to be my inheritor. Yitzchak is going to be next in line and is going to be the continuation of the Jewish people in the world. And now he's telling me, kill Yitzchak. So that's a total contradiction. It's a total contradiction. If I kill him, how is he going to last? And now here comes the nature of the test. Can I serve a God who seems to contradict himself? And now how am I serving that God who seems to contradict himself? Is it just, okay, well, I don't know if I can put on tefillin. That seems a little way out for me. You know, tying myself up with leather. I don't know. All right, that's a little test. If he's going to pass this test, he has to kill his son. <laughs> You're talking about putting your money where your mouth is. Can I serve a God who seems to contradict himself? And how am I serving him? By taking the future of the world and sacrificing it. That is the ultimate, 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 ultimate test. So, and we have to see also something very important. And this is very important. This is, you have to be very clear on this point here. It was a test in a muna. It was a test in a muna. And Abraham passes this test. He passes this test absolutely. He says, listen, I'm not always going to understand God. On some level, on some level, this is, this is, but, but it's clear to me that God said this thing. And I'll tell you something very beautiful. If you look at the language of the Pasuk, it says, this is very, very, very important what I'm telling you right now. This is a kind of switching from an intellectual philosophical exploration. And now I'm just talking to your heart right now. So please, please uh, listen to this. If you look at the language, when Hashem asks him to take Yitzchak, he says, Kach na. Now, na has two definitions. One is now, but um, it also means please. 
So God is asking, God is asking Abraham to do the most difficult thing in the world, which is from the standpoint of completely confusing Abraham, he knows Abraham is completely confused at this point. This was part of the test. And by the way, we always have to mention, if you look in the, in the Pasuk itself, it doesn't say kill your son. It says, bring him as a burnt sacrifice. It never says kill him. Now, that's deliberate, that was deliberate on Hashem's part. He knew that Abraham would misunderstand him. But it's very important to say because God never said kill your son. That's, that's never there. Ever, 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 ever there. But again, he understood that Abraham would be confused. That was part of the test. That's important because it shows you that God didn't change his mind. It's not like God told him one thing and then switched directions. God never changed his mind, never, never altered the instructions. But let's get back to this point. Hashem says, at this most excruciating request, He says, Kachna, please take your son. Let me tell you why this is so important. Because, you know, we hear sometimes in our voice, in our head, different voices. And I'm not talking about, um, I'm not talking about schizophrenia right now. And I'm not talking about uh, lack of mental health right now. I'm talking in a case of someone who's a grounded, spiritual person, even someone who's not spiritual. You just normally hear chatter in your head. This is normal. Everyone experiences this. And as someone gets involved with um, Torah, um, and you realize that there's there, there, there are hopes for growth and for climbing spiritually, and there are various milestones in terms of different mitzvahs and, and different um, r- refinements in, in character that have been expressed. So, so you know certain goals that, that you want to um, aim for and you want to aspire to. So these things are inside your head as well. And if you ever fall short of something that you're aiming for, sometimes you hear in your head, well, there's, you know, remember, there's that thing that, 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 that we want to climb toward. Okay. So why am I telling you this? Because sometimes those, sometimes that chatter, sometimes those voices, if you will, sound very, very angry and very hostile. Why did you do this? You're supposed to do that. Don't you know that that's a mitzvah? Sir, yes, sir. (laughs) Why did you say that? Why didn't you say that? Why did you go there? Why didn't you go there? (laughs) It's late. It's early. (laughs) Many of us hear that. Now, now, let's go back to what Hashem said. Listen to the way Hashem speaks when it's really Hashem, when He's asking the hardest request ever asked of anyone ever. Kach na, please take. Do you know what that means? So I want to say the following. If you're not hearing, if that voice isn't expressing itself in that beautiful way, kach na, it's not coming from God. Because when God speaks to you, He speaks to you beautifully. And if it doesn't sound like that, it's coming from another place. It's coming from a darker place. Even if it's trying to direct you seemingly towards something that's proper. And you have to go, okay, okay. Just, you just kind of like have to put that in perspective. Because otherwise... What happens is a person thinks that 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 energy, that voice, you know, is coming from Hashem. And then you get yourself involved in a very dysfunctional relationship with God. Because who is God? Who is the master of the universe? The one who is screaming at me inside my head. And then the next step is, how long can I stay in a relationship (laughs) 
with the one who screams at me all the time. I mean, really. So, so that's, that's really important. And can you imagine, like, someone walking around impersonating, like, we have identity theft. Today, identity theft is a really big thing. They get your credit card, and then they get your social security number, and then, you know, who knows what? Can you imagine that God has experienced identity theft? But really, I mean, there are all these people saying, and all these voices seemingly speaking in the name of God that aren't speaking in the name of God. Just simple outright. It's identity theft. You know, I heard... I heard a, a big rabbi explain that one of the major things that we have to understand about the fact that Moshe Rabbeinu was standing on Har Sinai and addressing everyone was that was God saying for all time, see that person, see Moshe standing on top of the mountain, that's who speaks for me. There was an open identification, it's him. And that's a major, that's a major bit of clarity. It's a major, you know, that's an understatement. All right, so now I want to keep on going forward. So, so Abraham Avinu somehow clings to the fact that God instructed me to do this. And you know what? It's true I may not understand all of the details, and there does seem to be a contradiction here, but nonetheless, I know for sure God directed me to do this. I know 1,000% for sure God directed me to do this, and so I'm I'm just going forward. And so he goes forward, and he passes the test, which is unbelievable, and he puts Yitzchak, you know, on the... Altar, and remember, everyone has to know Yitzchak is, I'm pretty sure, is 37 at this point. No one should think that Yitzchak was a little kid. That's not um, our tradition. He was a grown man. Also, no one should think that Yitzchak went unwillingly. Everyone should know that the Medrash says that Yitzchak says, tie me tightly because maybe I'll move and I'll invalidate the, the sacrifice somehow. So they... They went together, one of the greatest psukim in the entire Torah. It says that as soon as Yitzchak understood that he was the sacrifice, it says, and the two of them went together, which is just, I mean, that'll blow our minds till Mashiach comes, that one Pasuk alone. The fact that they were both down with the mission. It's like, all right, here it is, let's go. You know, there was no... You know, did you ever want to go someplace and you wanted to go that, to that place with the other person? It's like, what's the other person going to say? What are they going to think? I can't even ask. Can you imagine the most outrageous request in the world? And they're both totally there. And this is who we're from. This is who we're from. I mean, this is in our bones, literally. So, so, so now let's get to this Let's get to this next point. So, so the Abraham raises up his knife to finish the job, and he hears the angel say, Abraham, Abraham. Now there's a point that I heard from Reb Shlomo here, which is an amazing, an amazing point. I don't know in whose name, but an amazing, an amazing point, which is that this is proof that Abraham didn't just do this mitzvah, because, but he did it besimcha. You know, to, like if someone asks you to do something and you don't want to do it, maybe you do it and you go, all right, I'll do it, right? So that's kind of a bummer. But if someone asks you to do something hard and you do it and you do it besimcha, that's incredible. That's an incredible thing. So how do we know that Abraham did this thing besimcha? Because we have a rule about prophecy, which is that prophecy only comes if you're in a state of simcha. Which means 
he would have only have heard the angel calling him to stop him, Avram, Avraham, if he was in a state of simcha, because otherwise he wouldn't have heard the prophecy. So can you imagine, if he was going to do it, in order to pass this test, it wasn't just he had to do it, he had to do it and be ecstatic about it. I'm doing God's will right now. We're doing God's will together right now. He doesn't pass the test unless he's doing it at that level, because otherwise he wouldn't have heard and he would have killed Yitzchak. And then the angel says something unbelievable. The angel says, Avraham, Avraham, he says, he says, he says, now I know that you're God-fearing. Don't sacrifice him. Now I know that you're God-fearing. So I heard um, uh, a thought that's brought down by the Chida. How does Abraham, why does the angel say, now I know? Just say, you're a God-fearing man. Right? So, so the, the answer is that we know that when we do a mitzvah, that we create an angel. And that actually makes a lot of sense, even on a very strictly rational level, because when you do an act, you emit a certain energy, a certain life force. It's obvious. And the greater the enthusiasm, the greater the kavana, the greater the holy intention that you're doing the act with, the more refined and pure is the energy that you admit when you do it. That's clear. And when someone does something negative, God forbid, also a life force comes out of them as well. So, so, so if a person, and we all fall into this, says bruchas like, right? What they have done is they've created like this hunched over, one-legged angel, which is going to hobble around with them. You know, it says when you do a mitzvah, you make an advocate. I, I don't want that attorney. Like, I'm not... Not only wouldn't I hire that law firm, right? But I'm making that law firm. It's even worse. It's like I'm funding that law... I don't know. I want... I want the Harvard Law School angel. You know what I mean? So... But in order to get those advocates, in order to make those angels, one has to do, you say your bruchas, you do your mitzvahs, you do it with, you take a moment beforehand, you realize what you're about to do, and then you do it with all of your heart. So, so this is what the chidah brings down. The explanation is that the angel says, now I know, because the angel that was created looked at himself and saw that all of his limbs were there, and that they were big, and they were full, and they were strong, and that they were complete. And he saw, just by looking at himself and his own mightiness, if you will, that Abraham had done the mitzvah absolutely perfectly. So, so now something really amazing happens, and this I want to spend some time explaining. Abraham doesn't do, doesn't, doesn't sacrifice Yitzhak, as he was never told to sacrifice Yitzhak. And, um, and there's a little kind of like a PS. Let me just go into this for a moment, just because I think it's interesting. Um, Avram thinks, well, maybe, maybe I should just cut him a little bit. You know, so that there's some kind of like, some sort of like a testimony, if you will, that, all right, I was asked not to kill him, but nonetheless, this is proof that, that I was ready to do it and that he was on board and everything like that. And God says, no, don't do that. Don't do that. And what I think is so kind of interesting about that is that if you can imagine like, you know, you know, like a car speeding 
like 140 miles an hour. Like Abraham is like going to do it. You know, I mean, imagine the spiritual momentum that he's got built up. And we know that he did it with Simcha. He's like zooming toward this mitzvah. And all of a sudden the angel goes, no. At that point, at that point, it's possible that Abraham's ego could have kicked in. And he could have said, but I want a little, I want a little reminder. I want to like write my name in the cement, so to speak. A little reminder at the level that I reached. And God says, no, no, don't need it. <laughs> not asking for it. So imagine, like, not that that's what Abraham had in mind. I'm just approaching this from, just to make one point. That, that sometimes, um, I heard Rabbi Aaron use a phrase one time called uh, spiritual materialism. Sometimes one uh, can accomplish certain things spiritually, and then they, it's almost like, you know, like the fact that I put on, do this particular mitzvah would, to them, they, the way they present it to the world, it's almost as though they're wearing like a very fancy gold watch. You know what I mean? There's something, they've taken something spiritual and they've sort of like turned it into something material, something that's... Um, filled with their own ego, when the very essence of this spiritual act is, is just the attachment to God and the surrendering of ego. And so, so Abraham's not allowed to even touch Yitzchak. And now we get to this point. Now, all of a sudden, Hashem opens his eyes and he sees a ram caught in the thickets. So I'm really into this ram. Because I just learned that this ram was created during the first six days of creation. Okay? Not only that, but the ram horn that Hashem blew the shofar blast at Har Sinai, which was, just got louder and louder and louder and louder and louder and louder, right? When a human being blows a shofar, it gets louder and louder and then it gets softer and softer. This, this shofar blast just got louder and louder and louder and louder and louder. It says, Rashi brings down, that the, that the shofar, the ram's horn that Hashem blew, I mean, we're getting, this is all kaviyochol, as we say, this you can't take literally, but nonetheless, the, the point is very direct and very clear, was from the horn of this ram that was caught in the thickets, and that when Hashem blows the shofar blast of Mashiach, it's going to be the ram on the other side, the horn, I'm sorry, thank you. The horn on the other side. So this is like, this is one great ram. You know, I mean, no, no one's going to say otherwise. No one's going to, like, let's see your resume. Okay, I see your one horn for Mount Sinai. Very good, very good. You know, so. <laughs> um, so, so, so Abraham Abraham takes this ram and he, he offers this ram to God instead. Now, here's, here's what I want to get into now. There was no guarantee that Abraham was going to pass this test. That's why it was a test. Which means, let's say for a moment that Abraham didn't pass this test. So he never even went to Har Maria, which is, which is, by the way, the Har Habayas, where the Beis HaMikdash was. That's where this took place, if you didn't know. Let's say, or he got there and something went wrong, or whatever it is. The point I'm trying to make is, let's say he didn't pass the test. My question to you is, what would have happened to this ram? Right? This ram was waiting... It was creating, created during the first six days of creation, the Medrash says. Well, I guess the ram would have died. This is just me talking right now. I guess the ram would have, you know, galloped in a few more fields <laughs> and died. So, so that got me thinking. 
What about us? What about us? You know, if I'm 21, say, there might be someone who's a good choice for me at the person who I am at 21. Then if I'm 30, say, and let's say I'm in this example, let's say I've changed my life around and I'm a much better 30-year-old, let's say, than I was a 21-year-old. Is it the same person who was set aside for me when I was 21? Probably not. Because I'm a different person now. I'm a different person now. So, so whoever my soulmate is, I've climbed to a, another place in the world. I'm a different person. You know, there could be a tree right now growing in a forest which is going to be cut down and made into paper to publish your book. And it's already been set aside. But in order for that to happen, you have to write the book. (laughs) But there's something physically in the universe right now waiting for you But in order for you to be able to have the relationship with that thing, whatever it is, animate, inanimate, whatever it is, you have to climb to a certain level to have access to the true reality of that thing as it relates to you. So that blows my mind, right? This pen, right now, it's just a pen. Maybe I'll write down a phone number with it. But that pen could be the pen that I sign a million dollar check with. Right? Maybe. Maybe. So, so let's apply this more to us. And try to understand what tests are to begin with. Is Hashem just trying to make us crazy? Like, you know what? Life is kind of boring. I'll make them crazy. <laughs> That's not it. <laughs> so, so now we get deeper into sort of like the nature of creation and reality right now. Now, according to the Ramban, you have an explanation of two words, basically. Um, Bara, like from the word Breshit. And from the root um, Yud Tzadi Resh, like, like Yatsar, like to, to form really. So one is like to create and one is to form. And they seem very similar, very closely related. But the Ramban says something very, very amazing. And uh, a support for this is the Pasuk that Shlomo HaMelech says, King Solomon, says that there's nothing new under the sun. Meaning, all that God is going to create, He's already created. In fact, I'll tell you how deep this concept goes. Um, We have four fundamental elements in creation. We have uh, air, fire, water, and earth. And these four things relate to the name of Hashem, the Yudke Bavke. They correlate with these things. Now, earth is actually a combination of air, fire, and water. So in terms of the purest three elements, it's air, fire, and water. So I learned from Rabbi Yitzhak Isaac Haver, who was a very great Talmud Chacham and a Kabbalist and a, and a student of the Vilna Gons school. See, the bottom hay, which correlates with earth, 
It says, he says that Hashem is going to take these three elements, air, fire, and water, and when the new world comes about, after the resurrection of the dead, after Tachiyas HaMesim, he's going to rearrange these three elements, recombine air, fire, and water in a new way in order to create a new reality. But even in this new world, in this Olam Abba, in this new world that's, that awaits us, that the world is evolving spiritually toward, still it's going to be made out of elements that already exist because there's nothing new under the sun. So even the next world is going to be reformed by the fundamental ingredients of this world. So getting back to the Ramban, he says that God made the world ex nihilo, out of nothing, yesh miyayin, something from nothing once. That's breishis, that's bara. That's the potential that exists in the world. And then everything that he forms subsequently, he takes from this, The Greeks use the word chayom. And then he, he forms it out of this potential. In other words, the potential comes into the world once, and then he forms it and makes new things from this thing. And that's how God makes things. Okay. So now, it blew my mind yesterday when something hit me, which, you know, after the fact seems so obvious. But it wasn't obvious to me. I'm always saying over and over again that if you want to understand this world and if you want to understand your life, you have to understand something absolutely fundamental, which is that the world is still in the process of being created. It's not finished yet. The world isn't finished yet. If you experience injustice, if you see hatred, the world's not done yet. That's our job, to be partners with God in terms of finishing creation. And we do that through the mitzvahs. This is how it happens. Okay, but now let's, re- let's apply this to me in a very novel way, which is that each and every one of us is not done yet. We're not finished yet. And so right now, I'm, you know, in the middle of my life, I look at myself, I look at my body, I feel like I'm done. Part of me feels like I'm done. Hopefully not done for, but just done, like I'm done. Okay, so now I'm either going to have more mitzvahs, I'm going to have less mitzvahs, and that's basically what's going on right now. But me, I am essentially a created, finished being at this point. And then we'll fine-tune the, you know, it's like, it's like when they do the telethon and the numbers roll. Okay, so the numbers are rolling but we've got a board, you know, we, the, the, you know we've got the, the digits have been established already, their, their forms have been made, so how much really needs to be completed? But wait a second, let's, let's just wait on that thought for a moment. The nature of a test, and it's a very big subject, It's a very, very big subject, but let me just zero in on one of the foundations that the rabbis teach. That the nature of a test is, I have potential. Remember, we say God, with the word breshis, with bara, brings ultimate potential into the world as an actual, you know, semi-physical entity. It's a a real, it's an abstraction, but it's, it's real. And then he forms things from that. Okay? So right now, me, you, everyone, is in that, in that bara shape. We're that, we're in that potential mode. And a test is, will I take the potential that's within me and will I form it into something real in my life? That's a test. So when you pass a test, it's not just, let's be clear, it's not just, oh, I'm me and I'm a created being and it's like, will I, the created being called me, be able to do this? 
I did this. Okay, so that means I, the created being called me, did that hard thing. So I'm saying it's not that. I, this thing which is still potential, which is still forming, did this hard thing, and now I am this new thing. I'm just not, I'm not the me that I was before with an extra merit badge. I am a new thing. I have created something different out of myself. So that's an awesome thing, to be able to view yourself, that you yourself are still in the process of being created, and you get to mold yourself, you get to make yourself with God. And if you want a pasuk for that, it says it very clearly in the Torah. In chapter 1, verse 26, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Okay, it goes on. The pasuk goes on, but the key phrase is, Let us make man. So on one level, God is talking to each one of us, you and me, let's make man, let's make us together. And now, now this new creation, this new me, not the old me with just an extra merit, this new me now has access to different things in the universe that I didn't have before. Like, for instance, a ram. Like, can you imagine, you know, Abraham sees that ram three years ago, Probably didn't think twice. Now he sees the ram. It's a whole other thing. History is made. Right? There are people who, a guy sees a girl. Sort of like, okay, big deal. Cut to days, weeks, months, years later. They see each other again. I love you! Oh, Whole different thing because they're different, they're different people. So, so I want to just make one more point and then we'll, we'll stop. Um, uh, it's, it's a, it's a math point. Um, I've shared it with you, uh, before, but just want to end with this. You see, we have we have conventional geometry, also known as Euclidean geometry, and parallel lines are the definition is there are two lines that don't intersect. That's the definition of parallel lines. Think of Olympic Boulevard and Pico Boulevard. They don't intersect. They're parallel. Okay. Now we have something called geometry against curved space, non-Euclidean geometry, Boolean geometry, right? Geometry against curved space, all the laws act differently. So parallel lines in curved space actually intersect. It's a wild thing. Because the definition of parallel lines is they don't intersect, and yet against curved space, they do intersect. Okay? Now listen to this. This world is this world is an amazing world of opportunity. Um, we don't even know the extent of the opportunities that we have in this world. But I'm going to just shine a light on, on, on one thing that we may not be aware of. There are great people. There are spiritual giants walking around in this world. And you know what happens if you bump into them? you bump into them. I mean, you actually touch. If you say hello to them, they say hello back. You can actually interact with people who are phenomenally greater than you. Do you know what happens? So that's like we're in curved space right now. Parallel lines are intersecting. Things that should never touch are intersecting in this world. Do you know what happens in the Olama Emes, the world of truth? Parallel lines remain parallel lines. Oh, great person who I sat next to on the bus. There you are, seven heavens away from me. 
Hello! Can you hear me? No! Okay! Not only that, but you can intersect in this world with great people who aren't here anymore. I take a book off the shelf. I'm, I'm interacting with Moses. You know how long it would take to get an appointment with Moses? Who do you know? Do you know? I, you know what? My third cousin is Yeshua. He never leaves the tent. You know, so he knows Moshe. Well, can you get to Yeshua and then maybe mention my name? You can walk over to a bookshelf and you've got all the time you want with Moses. And God, by the way. And name a rabbi. You want to spend some time with the Baal Shem Tov? Open a book. <laughs> there he is. And you know what? He's not making small talk. He's telling you all the things you hoped maybe he might tell you. And you know what? He'll tell you over as many times till you understand. He's not going to get impatient with you. You might get impatient with you, but he's not going to get impatient with you. So, intersecting parallel lines in this world. You have access, access in this world. The next world, parallel lines become parallel lines. There might be some level of interaction. I've never been there. I don't know all the protocol. Maybe, maybe, some. But not like in this world. And so... Our glory, the glory of man, each of our glory is that, and sometimes we, we beat ourselves up for being works in progress, but our greatness till 120, as long as we're breathing in this world, is that we have the opportunity to create ourselves and to see ourselves as somewhat boundless. We're not stuck. We're not stuck. And I'll just close with this last thought, one of my very favorite words from Reb Shlomo, Oliver Shalom. He says, you know, he says, everyone loves, everyone loves a finished product. Everyone loves you when you're a grape, and everyone loves you when you're wine. He says, but you know how much a grape has to go through to become wine? <laughs> how much it has to get stomped on? He says, who loves you then? Who loves you when you're in between? He says, those are your real friends. And so I want to add to that, Torah, which is, you know what, right now the world is in between. So whoever loves God now, while there's still war in the world, while there's still hatred in the world, whoever loves God now while the world is still in between, that's someone who really is is God's friend. So Hashem should bless us all. We should have the strength to really see this world transform to the beautiful place that God always intended it to be.